HEC Breakthroughs. A knowledge at HEC Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to HEC Breakthroughs, your monthly podcast by the Knowledge at HEC team. Breakthroughs brings you the best of HEC Paris's academic research from professors and PhD students. We show how this research relates to and impacts on the challenges our world is facing. I'm Daniel Brown, the school's chief editor. Today's very special Breakthroughs podcast is dedicated to one of HEC's most outstanding academics, Denis Groom. This brilliant and much-loved professor of finance passed away recently. He will be remembered by his students and fellow colleagues at the business school as an outstanding researcher on corporate governance, the economics of organizations, and so much more. Denis was also just an amazing human being. Today's program features the likes of Pascal Lamy, Peter Altmaier, and Merit Janau. These top personalities from the political and academic worlds were amongst the 17 speakers at a conference at HEC Paris. Over three intense sessions, they confronted their points of view on constitutionalism. We were there to see how innovative research in faculties should and sometimes can lead to concrete policy proposals. And the war has just brought to the fore how viable global public goods and transnational public goods are. In a rules-based order, I think any endeavor that seeks to uh, renegotiate the global architecture is a waste of time. My strategic ambition is very much built on the premise that I actually believe a functioning market economy and open borders to allow cross-border trade is ultimately a public good. And actually it has led to improvements as well at, as one of my units on exchange um, and I was just very excited about the opportunity to listen in to some really impressive names in the space um, and a lot of like diverse people from very diverse backgrounds as well um, because I think we really need to take actions and not just like be passive uh, the statements are, are sometimes very beautiful and empowering and yeah insightful but not very efficient in the so way so if i could say in the context of constitutionalism in terms of the japanese climate law and policy west in zero by a 2050 goal seem drive climate law and policy what kind of leadership is needed to reform un wto and other global institutions to answer the health environmental and geopolitical crises of this 21st century and how can academic research nourish and provoke these debates and reflections well these are some questions that are being discussed here at the hec conference near paris for the next two days its organizers have called it constitutionalism, transnational governance failures, and policy responses. The conference features top speakers from political, economic, and academic fields, including former German Minister for Economy, Peter Altmaier, the chair of the Paris Peace Forum, Pascal Lamy, the Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce, John Denton, and top academics like Merit Janot, the former dean at Columbia University. I'm waiting for the first session to begin, which is being opened by the co-organizer of the conference, Armin Steinbach, the HEC Professor of Law. You may wonder whether 
a chateau is a suitable venue for an academic conference. And I had doubts initially as well. Until I learned that the chateau was owned by Antoine Dacan. Antoine Dacan was a medical doctor in the 17th century. And he was not just any medical doctor. He was the medical doctor to the Sun King, to Louis XIV. Over 21 years, he served Louis XIV and offered him medical treatment and medical advice. And I very much like the idea of us academics reconvening here a conference, offering medical advice and medical treatment to those in power, to rulers and policymakers. So the venue for me makes sense. Now, between the initial planning of the conference and today, the world has changed significantly. When My name is Armin Steinbach. I'm a professor of law and economics at HEC Paris. I mean, what motivated your desire to uh, set up a, a major conference with some uh, key players in terms of the academic world and the uh, geopolitical world, we could say? Well, we live in a world with massive policy failures. Policy failures in addressing the protection of transnational public goods. Climate and environment are an obvious example, but the rule of law, the paralysis of the trade dispute settlement are other issues. And with the most recent events in the war in Ukraine, it's also security. So we are increasingly seeing geopolitical externalities, climate externalities, or pandemic externalities. And there is no effective governance solution to these problems. And it is incumbent both on policymakers as well as academia to sit together to discuss the issues and to find ways out. And the approach that this conference has been taken is to inquire into legal constitutional rules. What can constitutional rules play? What role do they contribute to the effective tackling of transnational governance failures? Economic interest and economic interdependence. Now, the impact of the war on supply chains, on, on energy supplies, on, on inflation, on food prices shows the externalities that geopolitical conduct inflicts Well, I'm Merit Gino. I'm a professor of international economic law and international affairs at Columbia University's School of International Public Affairs. I also teach at Columbia Law School. And for the last eight and a half years, I've been dean of our School of International Public Affairs. But um, I've also had three periods of service in government. Mary Jane, uh, you are perhaps ideally placed to uh, reflect on uh, the, one of the objectives of this conference that Armin Steinbach brought up at the beginning, and that is how the academic world uh, should not stay in its ivory tower, but create uh, more dialogue with leaders uh, leading to further impact. Given your experience, how challenging is this call? I think it's a fantastic uh, invitation. I think it's very necessary, and I do think that academics uh, all over the world are doing, in some areas of their work, research uh, that can be of value to broader society and public policy. In the days when universities were only you know, self-contained units of experts talking to themselves, is really under challenge. We, we talk about this at Columbia University in terms sometimes of the fourth purpose of a university. You know, the first is knowledge creation 
research and teaching, and also uh, public service. Those cover the first three. And those are all things that American academics do, universities do, with a lot of emphasis on research. But there's relatively less emphasis on taking the ideas from the academy out into the world to have consequence. Now, uh, i am been running a school of public affairs, international and public affairs, which is fundamentally interdisciplinary with lawyers, with economists, you know, with natural scientists, and looking at problems in a interdisciplinary and holistic fashion around the great challenges of the day, not just uh, by discipline, economics, political science, etc. So I think one of the implications for schools of this kind, of which we have a global network around the world, is to look at contemporary challenges in an interdisciplinary way and with the goal of taking in part the scholarship of universities, the learning, the knowledge creation, and finding ways to bring it into the world. How do you do that? Well, there are multiple ways. Uh, uh, you know, sometimes we do it by having our faculties uh, go into office. But another way is to actually find ways to partner and do projects with institutions and academics um, and try to take that learning, you know, to governments. And, and there are millions of very good examples. We started the first climate school, I think, in the United States, possibly in the world, very interdisciplinary. And of course, uh, knowledge creation research is part of it. But the fourth purpose is also part of it, which is to take our best ideas out uh, to help drive progress and, and projects around climate. The governments should do what they say they're going to do about climate change. They should, they should not keep saying that they're going to do something and then do nothing at all. Kevin Anderson, Professor of Energy and Climate Change at the University of Manchester. So they should abide by their own rules, their own guidance, their own words, their own policies, but they're not doing that at the moment. So governments need to be actually moving away from the rhetoric of climate change, just writing about it in government reports and delivering actually meaningful action. And virtually no governments around the world are doing that at the moment. They've been writing the right sort of reports for 10 or more years about the policy documents, but they've delivered nothing in terms of reducing emissions. So it is just really translating on a, policy on a série Pascal Lamy, you are the founder of the Paris Peace Forum. Could you tell us what this is about in a word? Well, the Paris Peace Forum was created in 2018, and the starting point is international governance today is not working, and this has to change. We have a global governance deficit. We have major global problems like environment, like health, like the economy. And the structures that were created to address international cooperation in an institutional way after the Second World War are now obsolete. So we decided that we had to innovate with other than sovereigns that have become major actors of international governance, for example, businesses, businesses, multinationals, NGOs, large academic institutions, 
and there are a number of these on this planet now who have a real international cloud. So the concept is let's move international cooperation more into the hands of those who have a capacity to get things done. Pascal Lamy, you mentioned academic institutions, and here you are in your alma mater of ATC Paris. What role do you see academics, researchers doing to improve, to create the, these new bodies and this new structural system that you're calling on? Well, I think major academic institutions now have an academic role, thinking, researching, producing knowledge, educating. That's the traditional one. Most of them now, and this started as it sometimes does in the US, now have labs. They have projects, nurturing systems. They are hosting teams that try to get a number of things done. And I can see that in the US and also here. Among the comparative advantages to recruit high-caliber students, the quality of the teaching remains number one, but the capacity to train people in getting things done, in cooperating, in organizing things with teams that in one year or two years or three years achieve something, not just learn something, but achieve something. I think this is the way to go, and this is one of the reasons why a number of these major institutions now are important actors in global governance because they can coalize knowledge in many directions, heart science, human science, environment, health, and I can see that happening. Have you seen exciting examples of this? I mean, I see things happening like this in Colombia, for instance. I see things happening in the China-Europe International Business School, where I'm also a teacher. Like what? Like uh, drafting for a company a roadmap to react to consumers' changes on ESG, for instance. ESG is a growing discipline everywhere. You take a case study or a real company And they ask the students to advise them on what should we do to increase diversity, to look better <laughs> or greener in a serious way. So the, these are things which are happening now. My name is Christina Eckes and I'm professor of European law at the University of Amsterdam. And in my research, I really came from EU external relations, interested in the power dynamics between the member states and the EU. And now I'm more and more moving to climate litigation and the question of how norms constitutionalize and how that affects the powers of the judiciary and how that ultimately also affects democracy, so the possibility of people to choose their own course of action. And uh, the separation of powers in the 21st century, which you say is uh, very much the, for you the definition of constitutionalism, which is the subject or one of the subjects of uh, this conference. How important for you are such exchanges between policymakers and academics uh, as we see here in the, the two days in HEC Paris? Uh, well, I find these exchanges extremely valuable and I find this is an exceptional event in the sense that it really brings together policymakers, high-profile policymakers and academics on a defined topic, so where people really try to engage on one issue, let's say, that you can transfer in all the different areas and the different geographical regions that we discussed. 
And I find that extremely valuable and helpful. And also it makes you really look beyond your own research at things that you would otherwise not read or research. And that is always um, yeah, enriching. And extrapolating from that, how easy is the relationship between uh, researchers and academics from the higher institutions and policymakers in your experience? <laughs> Not always easy, but you were in the room. I think there were also some disagreements on how quickly we should move forward with climate mitigation in particular. And I think there's always the academic that has the privilege of commenting from the outside and the policymaker that has to reconcile all the different interests and is, of course, much more... Uh, yeah, being idealistic is easier for an academic than for someone who has actually to carry through the uh, policies. But that does not mean that academics do not have the role to hold the yardstick or hold a mirror to the policymakers and ask them what they really contributed to advancing the cause. What are the, the principal obstacles? I mean, for example, I can think of the time frame. There's different time frames for policymakers who have, you know, a limited time in power, at least in, in our sort of Western concept of it, and the long-term visions that academics have where there is uh, not so much pressure. And in fact, there's an invitation to, to look back long span of time, to take time and, to, uh, and then to publish. Uh, certainly, that is, I think, one tension. And I also think it highlights, again, the task of academics to put things in perspective, both by looking at the past, but also by looking further into the future. And yes, the fact that policymakers, uh, legislators live in political cycles and think in political cycles is one core problem of the whole environmental constitutionalism, or if you like, constitutionalism at its core, namely that we need higher norms that are sustainable, that uh, remain even when policymakers change. Ich will das begründen. Wir haben in Deutschland die Herausforderungen der Globalisierung. Yes, uh, my name is Peter Altmaier. I am a former politician from Germany and I was a member of the team of Chancellor Merkel for 20 years. She appointed me as a Parliamentary State Secretary, as Minister of the Environment, Minister of the Chancellery, as Minister of the Economy, and even as a short-time Minister of Finance. Peter Altmaier, you've shown a remarkable longevity and resilience, and I imagine agility to adapt yourself to changing yeah. realities in the world. And um, here at this conference, you've called on a new way of governing because the realities are accelerating and changing, and we are facing various uh, economic, climatic, and geopolitical crises. What role do you see the academic world playing in contributing to a new paradigm to face these challenges? Well, when you look at politicians as decision makers, um, we all rely on uh, academic advice. Perhaps not the minister or the state secretary himself. Uh, he cannot listen to all the, the professors and researchers, but his civil servants his general directors can, and it is important to discuss and to develop uh, ideas in a, uh, a proper and serious uh, way that will help us um, to respond adequately uh, to the challenges on global scale. We have seen that lots of changes are now happening much faster than in the past, 
It's no longer a matter of uh, decades, it's a matter of years. And some developments are extremely uh, pressing, otherwise we would see irreversible damages uh, done to the planet. Uh, and that was uh, today uh, my impetus that I really outlined the urgency. And which academic research do you think could help in this vision that you have? Well, it, it is obvious that scientists in natural science can deliver a lot of very valuable data with regard to climate change. We need also academic advice when it comes to not only to decision-taking but also to decision-shaping. And that requires public support for universities uh, because you need the jobs required. But it, it requires also a, a closer cooperation between the political sector and the academic sector because the politicians are the practitioners. And uh, the academic sector has to do the research uh, in order to know uh, what has been especially successful and what has been a clear failure in the past. We have a tendency of no longer speaking about failures uh, for example, the so-called Lisbon program of the beginning of the 20th century was a big, big failure. The intention was to make Europe the most competitive, innovative area worldwide. We are far from that when you look at digitization and biotechnologies, for example. We um, have been quite successful uh, with regard to the Green Deal, but we are far from achieving our climate targets. Peter Altmaier, you mentioned the scientists that will need to contribute towards the climate change crisis. What about the supply chain crisis, which you also brought up, the, the huge distortions and disruption which we are seeing at the moment? We're in a business school. How do you see researchers contributing? Which part of it would you like them to invest in more? Well, what we have seen in the past is that supply chains, first of all, have been built in a way that delivery in time was becoming more and more important because then you could reduce cost, you could reduce prices, uh, you could afford more. But now we have seen that this is extremely dangerous when you have a pandemic, when you have a war, and therefore we should discuss consequences. Uh, Japanese law to address climate change, for instance. Yukari Takamura, University of Tokyo professor at the Institute for Future Initiatives. Professor Takamura regularly exchanges with HEC Paris. Second feature is that quite different from the European situations. And current situation of the Japanese emissions Actually, the uh, 2030, it, it is a base year for the, our NDC, but uh, it is the highest <laughs> emission level, actually. So we had the uh, increase uh, in the emission, but uh, after the Fukushima accident, we accelerate the renewable policy. So that's why the, we see now the decline in emission. So we have uh, actually the eight consecutive year, the now the lowest level below 1990 level. So the My name is uh, Henry Gao. Uh, I'm a professor of law at uh, Singapore Management University. Uh, in my research, I specialize on international trade law, especially China's interaction with the WTO and also digital trade issues. 
and we are meeting here at this conference, one of the objectives was to bring closer the academic world and the policy-making world. How important for you are these explorations of a common ground between the two? Yeah, exactly. Actually, I fully uh, identify with the objective. Uh, for me, myself, actually, before I entered uh, academia, uh, started my career as a professor 20 years ago, I was working in the WTO Secretariat. I was the uh, first lawyer from China working at the WTO Secretariat. So uh, when I was there, I was uh, able to participate in some of the policy-making process, uh, working both the uh, Petty Body Secretariat and also the Trading Service Division. And nowadays, uh, even though I work as uh, a professor, but I also do a lot of consulting work for government. Uh, this involves, uh, for example, uh, advising governments on their trade policies and also helping uh, governments to trade officials you know, on the latest issues such as digital trade, such as all these uh, new generation of trade agreements and so on. So I, I personally strongly believe that the international trade law is a very special field. I mean, it's not like, uh, for example, legal philosophy where you can just sit in your office and come up with uh, big ideas. For international trade law, you have to understand you know, how the practice is done, and uh, you uh, really cannot conduct your research unless you understand you know, what's going on on the ground and what are the latest developments. So uh, I think all these training courses that I have done really provide a great way for me to understand you know, what the policymakers are thinking, what are their needs, what are their demands, and therefore to help them you know, to come up with solutions for the uh, most urgent problems. Henry Gao, how receptive are these policymakers to your ad- advice, and how much do they enact those uh, directives or guidelines? Well, uh, it depends. It really varies. I mean, uh, I've seen examples where the policymakers were really eager. You know, they really uh, took my recommendations to heart and uh, started implementing right away. But also there has been some cases where the policymakers uh, were uh, reluctant to implement. I mean, there are many reasons. There could be uh, capacity reasons. So for example, you know, one issue we discussed in the WTO is trade facilitation. But this would involve uh, for many of these development countries to buy computers or softwares, you know, which they might not have the financial capacity for. And sometimes uh, they might not have the technical know-how, you know, especially this involves uh, complicated technical issues. So I think uh, it's important to understand uh, the uh, different uh, backgrounds and uh, needs of uh, different countries and try to tailor the policy advice, you know, put yourself into the shoes of the policymakers and understand their limitations, understand, uh, you know, what they need and therefore tailor the policy advice in that way. I think uh, that would make uh, the best uh, advice possible. You and uh, Lu Xiangkun uh, both uh, pointed out during this conference some of the stereotypes that can negatively impact um, Western policymaking towards the realities that uh, China and its advancements uh, on the economic uh, fields especially uh, have posed. What role do academics like yourselves have in trying to give that bigger picture? 
That's uh, also another very interesting question. I mean, even though I'm currently based in Singapore, but actually I originally came from China and uh, grew up in China, so I also have many friends uh, in China, including uh, those working for the Chinese government. So I also advise the Chinese government, and I find that as uh, government advisors, it's uh, good to uh, keep the distance uh, away from the government so that uh, you know you do not just... Uh, you know, become a rubber stamp for whatever they wish to do, but instead to try to keep uh, at least two steps ahead of the government so that you can, you know, uh, point to the future direction of the policy movements and uh, help them. One example is uh, the uh, Chinese accession to the CPTPP, uh, which China... Uh, yeah, the CPTPP is this uh, giant uh, free trade agreement. Uh, its a full name is the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, uh, which involves uh, 12 countries from Asia-Pacific, uh, you know, the big economies like uh, uh, Japan, like uh, um, Australia. And then uh, China just announced very recently that they are going to apply to join the CPTPP. But, um, you know, before China applied, actually a lot of people were concerned that uh, China could not uh, fulfill the high standards of the CPTPP, especially its chapter on e-commerce, which included many uh, really high uh, standards, high uh, obligations that they think that China would not be able to comply with. But uh, actually last year, uh, before China announced the bid, I was invited by the uh, International Monetary Fund, the IMF, to give a seminar to uh, the senior officials of the Chinese government on digital trade issues. And I explained to them that uh, actually, if you look at the obligations uh, under the CPTPP, the obligations are not unreachable. I mean, China, of course, has a certain gap uh, in its existing laws, but if you understand you know, the way the Chinese uh, uh, laws and regulations have been evolving. If you understand, uh, you know, uh, the way that uh, the CPTPP is crafted, uh, which include, uh, you know, many exceptions that China could take advantage of, then you could see that uh, the gap would be much narrower uh, than people uh, would uh, would think. So uh, I, I was glad to see that uh, shortly after the seminar, you know, the Chinese announced that they are planning to join the CPTPP. So I guess that uh, my advice uh, uh, was taken seriously, yeah, and uh, that is the best result you could get as a policy advisor. HEC breakthroughs. Frank Fukuyama, the, the political scientist, uh, called the Chinese system responsive authoritarianism. Eric Lee, a Chinese venture capitalist and political scientist who founded the Chinese news site Guancha. It's not exactly right, but I think it, it comes close. So I know this, uh, the, the largest public opinion survey company in China. Okay? Do you know who their biggest client is? The Chinese government. Not just from the central government, the city government, provincial government, to the most local neighborhood districts. They conduct surveys all the time. Are you happy with the garbage collection? Are you happy with the general direction of the country? So there is, in China, there's a, a different kind of mechanism to be responsive to, to the demands and the thinking of the people. My point is, I think we should get unstuck from the thinking that there's only one political system, election, 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 that could make it responsive. I'm not sure, actually, elections produce responsive government anymore in, in the world. I'm Erin Daly. I'm professor of law at Delaware Law School uh, in the United States, and I'm the director of the Dignity Rights Clinic. 
Erin, you've come here for this conference at HEC Paris, which tries to build bridges between the academic world and real-world activity through policymaking. For you, how important is it to create a dialogue between the two? I think it's very important. We're very fortunate in academia to have the time and the ability, the resources to think through problems, to take the time to look deeply at issues. And I think the only purpose of that is actually just to help make better policy or help improve people's lives. And in your quite long career as an academic, how have you articulated that? You haven't waited for this conference to try and get your students and yourself mobilized to change policy. Yeah, I think that I've been very fortunate in being able to bring my scholarship into the classroom and worked with students for many years in a variety of different ways. My primary scholarly interest is in human rights and the law of human dignity and the obligation of the law to respect and protect human dignity, the obligation of lawyers to move the law towards greater protection of human dignity so that people can live fuller lives. And for a number of years with a colleague, I've taught a practicum and now a clinic where students are learning about dignity rights, about the rights that, are, that flow from the recognition of human dignity, and then apply that learning in concrete situations in the United States and also around the world. For example? So, for instance, we worked for a while with an organization that was advancing the rights of the Roma people in Albania and in Central Europe. We've worked with um, lawyers who have helped immigrants from Syria and from other places around the world, immigrants to Europe, and trying to identify ways in which the European immigration system could respect the dignity of all people. Right now in my clinic that I'm directing, I'm working with students to advance the dignity of people who are system impacted, whether they're incarcerated or they are being tried for criminal conduct or even post-release. And we're looking at the different ways in which our system in the United States harms people's dignity, ignores their dignity, and fails to respect them, and ways in which we might advance the law so that it respects dignity. And everything I do in terms of uh, the ICC, repurposing, purpose-led, not member-driven, changing our governance model, is all designed to, to create us as an institution so that we then have institutional legitimacy, and that's something we parlay. But may I ask you a short question? Uh, John Denton, I'm the Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce, based in Paris. Hosting these kind of discussions, we involve, I suppose, people like me, who are from the private sector, is not from academia, but people who have a world view and have a global, have an interest in global cooperation, partly because it's necessary for us to achieve what we need to do. And bringing them into the discussion hopefully will help shape some of the thinking and some of the research that actually needs to happen. And that's where I think universities could, I think, learn a little bit from these sorts of discussions about, oh, maybe that's how we should prioritise this if we want to be heard and if we want to be relevant. For example, there should be uh, in global institutions when they have the general assemblies, they should also have breakout groups or they should have impact groups which involve academics, 
I mean, academics still have very high trust level, particularly experts have a high trust level among citizens, but with the private sector to actually bring forward fresh thinking into these debates, because a lot of these debates are very sterile and actually position-based, whereas we, like the private sector and academics, are actually more interest-based. So actually bringing that into the discussion could be very useful. I mean, Steinbeck opened by saying that we need to bring academics into more general public visions. What do you think are the stumbling blocks to achieve that? So is it the language? Is it the the long term against short term or other? Well, I mean, I'm no expert, but I'm, I'm actually creating a global learning platform at ICC. Uh, and I've discovered in talking a lot to the institutions that currently provide it, that they're actually supply driven rather than demand driven. So there's actually an inertia in actually reshaping yourself in terms of what is actually required rather than shaping yourself on the basis of what motivates yourself. And I think your incentives are misaligned. Uh, most academics, as I understand it, are rewarded not on how they contribute to the global good, but on how many research papers and how many publication references they have. We, we've got to step back and think about that, I think. So alignment, would, even at a business school, they should be thinking about alignment issues. It strikes me that there's opportunity. So I, I'm doing work on durable humanitarianism, how you bring private sector into the heart of how you enable effective humanitarian responses to what will be fast multiplying uh, crises. Why wouldn't a business school want to get involved with that as well? That's something I throw out to you as a challenge for your institution. Uh, other business schools are interested. Let's get HSC interested as well. HSC Breakthroughs, a knowledge at HSC podcast. My name is Uli Petersmann. I'm an emeritus professor from the European University Institute in Florence, but I still have an office in the World Trade Organization where I have been a legal consultant or legal advisor for more than 40 years. So I always combined an academic teaching career and ac academic research career with a professional career inside the United Nations or inside the European Union or inside the German government or inside the World Trade Organization. Ule, we're at a conference which has constitutionalism at its heart. For you, what is constitutionalism? That is a very important question which especially North Americans ask and they don't understand uh, the word constitutionalism. In the United States nobody thinks in terms of changing the American constitution because uh, America is a very money-driven, business-driven society, very nationalist, very hegemonic. So constitutionalism is uh, an approach which is almost incomprehensible to American negotiators. In Europe, it is completely different. Europe uh, responded to the global financial crisis of 2008 by constitutional reforms of the European uh, Union Treaty, fiscal and monetary reforms. Europe responded to the global health pandemics by proposing a European health union. Europe responded to the energy crisis now by introducing some kind of energy union. Europe responded to Russia's war against Ukraine by excluding uh, Russia from practically all European institutions and organizing a very collective sanctions against Russia. So here we see Europe is using global governance crisis as an opportunity for constitutional reforms limiting transnational governance failures inside Europe. So we use the term constitutionalism in a very broad sense as constituting, limiting, 
regulating and justifying multi-level governance of public goods. And since practically all public goods have become international and global through globalization, and no state can protect global public goods like global health pandemics or global uh, climate change through national policies alone, all states are dependent on international cooperation, international treaties, multi-level governance. Constitutionalism must be viewed in a much broader context and must ask how can we constitute multi-level governance institutions, how can we limit them, how can we regulate and justify them in a way that they become capable of protecting global public goods. And unfortunately, we see the reality the UN, the United Nations is utterly failing in protecting global public goods. So uh, here, from a constitutional perspective, we have to ask how should we respond to the global governance failures at, in the United Nations, in the World Trade Organization? What kind of plurilateral responses can we organize at regional levels or at plurilateral, in plurilateral coalitions? What kind of national reforms should we introduce? We have to identify the causes of the governance failures much more precisely. We have to ask what are the market failures? For example, we have obviously market failures provoking the climate change crisis due to the lack of environmental rules. We have obviously market failures in terms of inadequate competition rules. But then we have to ask, what are the constitutional failures? So given these realities, how can a constructive and positive dialogue be created between the academic world and the policy-making world, which is at the heart of this conference? Yeah, that depends on the political leadership. When uh, Pascal Ami was director general of the WTO, Pascal Ami is a good example for combining academic thinking with political action. And uh, Pascal Ami emphasized, he wrote a little uh, but wonderful book on what he called the Geneva Consensus, published in 2013 by Cambridge University Press, where he emphasized that human rights and trade liberalization should be seen as complementary uh, strategies. So there are some political leaders. But are they the exceptions more than the unfortunately, rule? Unfortunately, they are the exception. And what explains that? Uh, that explains the fact that international organizations, the UN and the WTO, are driven by power politics. And that power politics is a very forceful reality. And, uh, and academics scare them or they just don't interest them? Academics try to find ways for speaking truth to power politics, for holding abuses of power politics accountable. So academics can try to explain convincingly why third-party adjudication is a win-win situation. And we have uh, the symbol of justice is, I mean, for more than 2,500 uh, years, it is justitia holding a balance and uh, holding a sword and representing the virtues of third-party adjudication, a blindfold, a sword, and the balance of uh, balanced procedures. In terms of the academic world, how do you see improvements that could encourage 
researchers and academics to become more involved and to translate their studies, their explorations into normative policies and pragmatic solutions that the world needs. My personal experience is that uh, if you appoint academics which are not uh, living in an ivory tower but which combine their academic work with policy advice to governments at the national and European and international governance level and this uh, is a way of motivating, explaining to academics why public service can not only be socially important, but also can be existentially very rewarding for an academic and professional career, which is not only money-driven, but which is very much also motivated by professional and moral ideals. Now, the impact of the war on supply chains, on, on energy supplies, on, on inflation, on food prices shows the externalities that geopolitical conduct inflicts on the society. And we are increasingly faced with externalities such as the environmental externality, pandemic externality, and geopolitical externalities. Now, when economists talk... Is there also a failure in the dialogue between ac the academic world and the world of policymakers, which you're addressing here? Clearly, academia and politics and policy making are two different worlds. Armin Steinbach, HEC co-organizer of the two-day conference. Both obey to different laws, to different rules, to different conduct. And what is important and what is my motivation is to stimulate exchange because in the past this exchange has not always been, at least not on these very pressing issues of transnational governance failures, very fruitful. And that makes it so important that we invite for our academic exchange, we invite policy leaders from whom we seek inspiration, from whom we seek policy ideas, but who we can also inform from our side on what can be possible, what could be legal options, what could be governance designs that may work in politics. How ready is the world of politics to accept more injunctions from the academic world to rectify these failures in their own policies? In principle, every good politician should be interested in setting, making good decisions, sound decisions, empirically accurate decisions, and to do so, he and she needs good research and good science and good factual foundation. So there should be a genuine interest of politicians to inquire at least with academia on what could be policy proposals. However, we all know that the reality is different. We all know that politics play by their own rules, that it's about power and not about making sound and rational decisions. And the contribution that academia should really push for and claim to make is to inform the policy debate. So we should be outspoken about our contribution to policy making and make politicians read our policy proposals and ideally also abide by them. 
Research evidence plays an important role in uh, policy making. Paul Barrow, Birmingham University professor and former health minister in Parliament. But maybe not always in the way that researchers might hope it does. So sometimes research can be used as the basis for deciding not to do something rather than as the basis to decide to do something. The thing I think most important when it comes to having a dialogue with policymakers is always recognising the context uh, in which they're operating uh, and the relevance, therefore, of your research. Exactly, and without being arrogant, I think I can claim that we are playing some role in the shadow economy debate, not just in the overall debate, but also when it comes to, for instance, some industry-level issues, such as shadow economy or construction industry in general. Arnis Sauka, director of the Centre for Sustainable Business at the Stockholm School of Economics. And I think that is another reason why I like it. It's a lot of interaction with the industry and it's it's a lot of interaction with the policymakers. And even though the sharp economy started from the business that I was involved in, it, it was then uh, the PhD studies, which is academic sort of uh, issue. Then we created the sharp economy index, which was sort of applied research. But from the sharp economy index, uh, then we published academic paper about this. Then in one of the conferences, I had a conversation with his former Minister of Economics, and, and he said that, well, we are also interested in the tax morale. So it's back and forth. Uh, it adds to the policy debate in one way or another, but it also comes back to the academic world, and we benefit as, as researchers uh, who work with the data. And then again, at some point, we, we return back to this policy making. And it, these are different worlds. In, in one, you are wearing the suit. In another, you are typing at home. It's not always easy, but it's lots of fun, definitely. HEC Breakthroughs, a knowledge at HEC podcast. The HEC Conference on Constitutionalism, Transnational Governance Failures and Policy Responses is to be published in the form of a book in 2023. Its 190,000 words are divided into four parts. The authors aim to develop innovative research which they believe will help policymakers address the growing number of market, governance and constitutional failures the world is experiencing. We'll be following the debates this academic work is likely to provoke in a future podcast. Meanwhile, feel free to send in your comments and questions to browned at hec.fr. That's browned in one word at hec.fr. Well, that wraps up this HEC Breakthroughs. If you want to enjoy it again or re-experience some of our previous podcasts, why not go to the Knowledge at HEC pages? Till the next time round, goodbye. <laughs>